It's Wednesday, February 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We were waiting for it, and now it happened. California, along with 15 other states, have filed a lawsuit against President Trump's emergency declaration over border wall funds. The lawsuit argues that the president used the pretext of a manufactured crisis to declare a national emergency. The lawsuit will make its way through the Ninth Circuit, which has ruled against him on various other legal challenges. Jeremy White, reporter for Politico, joins us to set up this legal fight. Next, after last week's shooting in Aurora, Illinois, one of the first questions that pops up is, did the suspect own the gun legally? In that case, he passed the background check and got his gun, but he never should have passed that background check. He had a prior felony conviction in another state. This is a problem that arises in cases all across the country, people getting guns when they shouldn't. There's a law in the books that says a gun sale can proceed after three days, even if a background check isn't completed. Zusha Ellenson, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about how many banned buyers get guns and what the ATF has to do to get them back. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And we will have a national emergency and we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there. And we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court. Joining us now is Jeremy White, California politics reporter for Politico. So we were waiting for this, the uh, legal objections to President Trump's national emergency at the border. California is leading 16 states in a lawsuit against this emergency declaration. The Attorney General Javier Becerra announced it on Monday. What do we know about this complaint? This is now the third set of lawsuits, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what does this specific complaint say? Well, the central argument in this complaint, which California filed along with 15 other states, is essentially that these states would suffer real harm from this emergency declaration, both from the loss of a lot of federal funds that would be diverted to build the wall. And then in the case of California and New Mexico, the two border states in the lawsuit, there's an additional argument that the wall construction would uh, inflict pretty wide-ranging environmental damage. All of these states have Democratic attorneys general, but one of these states does uh, all of but one of these states have a, a Democratic governors as well. I think Maryland is the only one that doesn't. I did have a question because I know I guess the states along the border would be mostly impacted. Everybody else is just kind of signing on to this, saying that we agree with them, uh, even though they have no specific skin in the game there. Well, as I said, I think all of these states stand to lose some money. There's millions of dollars at stake here. So you could certainly make the argument that some states might have more to lose than others. Again, the border states might actually have a physical barrier within their territory could arguably see a larger impact. But, you know, the argument is that all of these states are going to see some form of uh, loss of funds, at least. And I guess it depends where they choose to take the money away from to actually allocate there to the border. A little more into the complaint, all of these states are basically saying, yeah, there could be some irreparable environmental damage. But a lot of this plays out kind of like a lot of the talking points that we've seen going around in the discussion leading up to this. Basically, things that the president is manufacturing a crisis. The border crossings are down. It's mostly asylum seekers that are getting to ports of entry. So uh, a lot of this is kind of a takedown in a political sense. And that's a lot of how they're structuring it. They're even using his own words against him when he said he didn't need to do this. Certainly. And I think everybody who was watching that press conference, particularly the people like 
California attend Attorney General Javier Becerra sat up and took notice when the president said that. And sort of, I think a lot of them saw that as laying out their legal case for them. Javier Becerra said in a press conference that day repeatedly that the president had already said he didn't have to do it. And indeed, the lawsuit uh, cited those words. And also, uh, as is becoming kind of a common feature of the Trump era, cites a lot of tweets from the president in addition to public statements about how uh, he was determined to build the wall for years and years, sort of laying out the case that he was going to attempt to do this regardless of whether uh, there was merit to his claim of, a, of an emergency existing. And um, as you said, I think the arguments in this lawsuit by and large track some of the political debate we've seen. This lawsuit also builds on California's record of defying the administration. They've have also a number of fights with the administration. This is also going to be set up in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which the president specifically has called out a number of times saying, you know, even in that press conference that we were talking about, he said, hey, this is going to get filed there. We're going to lose. We're going to go back and forth. And eventually it's going to go back to the Supreme Court. Talk to us a little bit about the troubles that the president has had with the Ninth Circuit. Nothing new that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is seen as a more liberal court that tends to um, side with uh, more liberal arguments for plaintiffs. And as you point out, California has filed coming on 50 lawsuits against the Trump administration. So there's certainly been plenty of action um, in the Ninth Circuit. And I think it obviously remains to be seen where the courts end up on this one. But the president certainly made sure in his response to mention the Ninth Circuit right away. Looking at the larger context, the president clearly is thinking about the political implications of this emergency declaration and of uh, sort of showing his supporters that he is willing to take decisive action to build this wall. I think in the same way, he's sort of signaling to his supporters, it's us against the system that's stacked against us by liberals. Right. Yeah. He called the uh, Democrats uh, the radical left. Uh, obviously, he did mention the Ninth Circuit. And he also called California out for their high-speed rail train project that got half canceled, I guess. Uh, he said that, you know, they're out of control with their fast train and there's no hope of completion. They seem to be in charge of this whole mess also. So <laughs> just kind of continuing to hit on them. When we're looking at timeline now, how long is this part of the process going to take? I can't say that for sure, but I think it's fair to say that we are going to see uh, a lengthy legal process that is likely going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. We've seen that with several of the issues in which California has challenged the Trump administration, ban on visitors from majority Muslim countries. Uh, there's a lawsuit about asking about immigration on the U.S. Census. Supreme Court is going to take a look at. So I think this fits into a larger pattern of Donald Trump attempting to carry out his agenda and California being among the leaders that says, let's put this to the constitutional test. Yep. And now it's time to wait. Let's see what the judges say. And then, uh, as the president did already allude to, <laughs> that's the next step. We'll appeal and go back and forth for a little while. Jeremy White, California politics reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. In 2017, ATF agents had to track down guns sold to more than 6,000 people who were identified after the fact as being legally banned from buying them. The National Instant Criminal Background System, or NICS, is supposed to prevent that. 
The FBI's background check system denied more than 100,000 gun transactions in 2017. But according to federal data and interviews with law enforcement officials, there are holes in the system and a crush of background requests. And that's undermining the government's ability to keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. Joining us now is Zusha Ellenson, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, covering guns, cops and crime. You guys had a a very interesting story about how the ATF retrieves guns from banned buyers. These are people who have bought guns. And then later on, it turns out that they should not have had these guns and the process that they go through to get those things back. Last week, we just had a workplace shooting in Illinois where the a gunman killed five people. He had a gun legally, but we find out later, this is the first question that everybody always asks, is he supposed to have this gun? We found out he wasn't supposed to actually have this, but he went through the process. They did give him the gun and then it was something that he didn't disclose that allowed him to get this. Let's talk about that first, and then we'll get into the ATF. So, Oscar, you make an excellent point. After every one of these mass shootings, right, the first thing people want to know is, should this guy have been able to own a gun? As everyone knows, there's laws about who can own a gun in this country. If you have a past felony, if you've been committed to, say, a mental asylum, if you've had other legal troubles, you're not allowed to own a gun. And it turns out this guy, Gary Martin, who shot up his former workplace outside of uh, Chicago there, he had a past felony, a conviction for felony assault back in 90 which should have prohibited him from, him from ever buying a gun. But somehow he slipped through the state background check system there in Illinois and was able to purchase a gun. Now, Illinois is one of 13 states that does their own background checks. The rest of the country mainly relies on the FBI. So the state does their own background checks. They did an initial check on him that missed his old felony. He gets his little firearms card. He buys the gun. They later find out he has this old felony. By then it's too late. They ask him to turn it in. He doesn't turn it in and they don't go to seize it. So he keeps the same Smith & Wesson handgun that he uses in the horrific attack of last week just because the background check system didn't catch him in Illinois. And in this case, I mean, he could have had potentially have had this gun forever. He got the gun already. The thing that really triggered it was that he wanted to get a concealed carry permit and he wanted to expedite that process. So he submitted his fingerprints. And then once they ran those fingerprints, then it came up that he had this thing in Mississippi. And in that case, talk about people who should not own a gun. He hit his girlfriend with an aluminum baseball bat. He stabbed her repeatedly with a butcher knife. And just because he didn't submit fingerprints the first time around, he was able to get that gun. They send him a letter. Excuse me, sir, please, you shouldn't have this gun. Can you return it? I mean, that's something that goes into the trash instantly. Absolutely. And what authorities there, they're looking into all this right now. They're trying to figure out why the first background check didn't catch that old felony. It seems like it should have. And then they're also investigating why no one did anything when he didn't turn in the gun. Now, under Illinois law, local cops don't have to go get the gun from the guy, but they can. And they didn't in this case, obviously. So that's the case in Illinois. They do their own background checks. And as you said, the majority of the country relies on the FBI. And then the FBI relies on the ATF to go and get these guns back a lot of times. So let's talk about this other part of the story. Banned buyers And just the rules with buying guns. A lot Mm -hmm. of times in minutes, you can get past your background check if you have nothing wrong with you. But sometimes things take a little longer. But because of the federal law, a sale can proceed after three business days. So let's say something is weird in somebody's background check and they have to go back and, and figure out what's wrong. And this could take a week. 
maybe a month. Mm -hmm. Who knows how long it could take. But legally, the sale can proceed after three days. That just sounds crazy to me. Back in 93, they passed the Brady Bill, which was a big gun control bill named after um, Ronald Reagan staffer, Mr. Brady, who was shot during the assassination attempt. Part of it was instituting this background check system that we now have. And in that bill, it said that if the background checks are not finished within three days, the sale can proceed. So that means like, say I go into a gun store, I want to buy myself a gun and they see something in my background that they need to look into further. So they say, put a, put a hold on it for three days. But then say the FBI employee who's looking into my background, say they can't find the record. There's a lot of records that aren't entered into the system like they should be. Or say they're busy with other cases and they don't get to it. If three days passes, I can go back to that gun store and say, hey, the three days passes. Can you sell me that gun? And the gun store can sell me the gun, even if my background check is not completed. And the number of these cases where people are getting guns without a completed background check has been going up in recent years. In 2017, 310,000 sales were allowed to proceed before the background check was completed. And we've seen it going up as background checks have gone up in general and also as FBI employees have been overwhelmed trying to do more work and trying to prevent the next mass shooting. Then what happens, so the, the FBI employees, they have a lot more scrutiny on, on them these days because of mass shootings in the past where mass shooters have gotten guns where they shouldn't have gotten guns. And so they're working a little harder harder now. And what's that? part of the reason that we're seeing more of these referrals to the ATF. So the FBI employee keeps working on the background check and then they finally find something. They're like, oh man, we shouldn't have let that guy get that gun. He has this criminal record from a long time ago. And so they send the ATF agents out to seize the gun. And that's what our story was about. They're going out thousands of times a year to take back guns that should have never been sold in the first place. And the number is going up and up. In 2017, the latest year where we have numbers, there are about 6,000 times that ATF agents were sent out to take back guns from people who should have never been allowed to have them. This is a top priority for ATF agents when it's time to go do this. From the report, if they're working on uh, drug seizures or something that's happening at the border or whatnot, and one of these things come to their attention, it's like, drop everything now and go get this gun back because nobody wants to sit on uh, the next mass shooter. I mean, this happened with Dylan Roof, who uh, shot up the uh, church in, in Charlton, South Carolina. He should not have had the gun. You're so right, Oscar. The Dylan Roof case haunts everyone because what happened with Roof, if you'll remember, he's a white supremacist who in 2015, he goes to buy himself a Glock and then he shoots up this church. It's a terrible, tragic, horrific shooting. And he shouldn't have been able to buy the gun, the FBI admitted afterward. What happened, he had a past drug arrest. When he went to buy the gun, his name, there was a little uh, entry there in the database and the FBI employee said, oh, I should look into that. It looks like he was arrested for drugs and drug users aren't allowed to own guns. So I need to get the report from the arrest so I can make a determination. So this examiner, she um, contacted the local police but ended up contacting the wrong local police department. Anyway, the three days passed and she had never, she didn't get the record and he got the gun and they stopped looking into it. And then he carried out this horrific attack two months later. So a judge looked at this case. He blasted the federal, federal government, number one, because this report about Roof was actually in a database that other law enforcement officers can easily access. But the FBI employees who did the background checks weren't allowed to access it at the time. So that has now been changed. Now the FBI employees would have been able to find the record that would prohibited Roof from getting the gun. But at the time, they did not have access to that database. And it's a small change, but a pretty significant change. So they use the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. It's known as NICS 
to weed out the people who pose a public risk and shouldn't be having these guns. Talk to us about the process of getting the guns back. It all starts with a letter from the ATF. We'll take you through one of the cases we uh, talked about in our story. I don't know how old your listeners are, but there used to be a famous pro wrestler named Terry Funk. And I think his catchphrase was something like suck eggs or something like that. Anyhow, he lives near Amarillo, Texas. He has a ranch there. And about a decade ago, a guy named Michael Allen Chance Green, who was a cowboy working on a ranch nearby, became obsessed with Terry Funk. And he would deliver him these really bizarre handwritten letters in his mailbox. And uh, Funk told us that he came onto his property uninvited. So eventually they charged this green guy with um, stalking. And he goes into the court system and, well, the judge in the case decides that actually Green is mentally ill. And so he declares him mentally incompetent and sends him to a state mental hospital. Come 10 years later, 2016, Green goes into a Texas gun shop and buys himself a rifle. And because of the three-day limit on the background checks, it sort of slips past the three-day limit. He gets his gun. But then the FBI realizes, oh, this guy was declared mentally incompetent. He's not allowed to own a gun. So they send the ATF out to go collect his gun. And what do they find in his house? They find that gun and two other revolvers, as well as a bunch of certified mail receipts where he had sent a bunch of letters to various politicians. They, you know, the feds are insinuating that he may have been a danger. His lawyer, Green's lawyer, say he is not a danger. He, you know, he just has some mental troubles and he sees the world differently, not a danger. In any event, they seize his guns and now he's in a prison medical facility getting medicated with antipsychotic drugs. But that's an example of the type of case where they have accidentally let this guy get a gun and now they have to go seize it from him. There's been lawsuits related to some of this stuff. Going back to Dylan Roof, families of the people killed by him tried to sue the government for failing to stop him from buying a gun. The U.S. has immunity in such in claims like this, so that case was denied. But even some of the uh, people in the FBI say, you know, that the background check system is disturbingly superficial. And the single most influential factor that could be changed without affecting the whole process could be don't have a three-day limit or wait until the background check is complete. There's been laws introduced to that effect, but those things have uh, never really made it anywhere close to passing. Right. So we talked to Stephen Morris, who used to run the background check system at the FBI. He's recently retired. And he thought, how do we get ourselves out of this problem? He thinks it's by extending that three days, as you say. There are some states like California that allow more time for background checks. There's other states that do that, too. And he thinks if you could extend it out to five or ten days, you wouldn't have these so-called delayed denials where people are getting the guns that shouldn't get them. On the other hand, and, I, and we do have to, we, we should, you know, make it clear that's, that's his view and right. some, some other former government officials' views. If you talk to the NRA, they say, well, why should gun owners suffer because the government is bad at doing their background checks? You know, we, you know if you want to fix the problem, make the background check system work better. Get all the records in there, hire more FBI examiners and so forth. Don't take it out on gun owners. They're worried that people are going to be arbitrarily denied, you know, their right to have a gun if the government's, you know, waiting months and months to approve a background check. Yeah. And there could be a little bit of truth to that. You know, it was we said in 2017, there was 8.6 million gun transactions that were processed by the FBI. That is an extremely large amount of gun processing right there. So it is tough to keep up. And, and those workers are overworked and overburdened on this. Thank you very much. You guys at the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal made an excellent video summing this whole thing up. I suggest everybody go and check that out. Zusha Ellenson, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Oscar. I really appreciate it.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.